Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plug-in makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Doug Rogers, CEO and founder of East West Sounds. Now, if you don't know who East West is, odds are you've still heard their work. East West has created some of the most iconic and largely used orchestral sample libraries in the entire world. It's very rare to find a composer who writes, especially in cinematic styles, that doesn't use their stuff. If you've played a game or watched a movie in the last 10 years, odds are some East West stuff has snuck their way onto the score. Now, Doug and his company has been producing sample libraries for about 32 years, so there's a lot we can learn from him. Doug occupies a really good, interesting space of the musician-entrepreneur mix. I think that's a space that a lot of creators should be thinking about, how they can become more of a business owner as well as a creator and mix those two things together. And considering Doug is the perfect hybrid between the two, there's a lot we can learn from him. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Doug. The first sort of question I have is you've been in business, I believe, for 32 years now? In this business, yeah. Yeah, which is absolutely insane. And that's just with East West, right? Like, Because you've had studios before, you sold it, you moved from New Zealand to LA, right. then started selling drum samples and kind of moved up from there kind of step by step. So I'm curious throughout all of that of becoming probably the biggest sampling company in the world, if not the biggest, how you stay consistent, like how you're still consistently making stuff, how your output stays, you know, always high quality, and how you stay kind of energized and focused throughout all of that for three decades. It's just our passion, you know. I mean, it started off in the beginning uh, that I was engineering in studios and I had people coming in with uh, these new boxes, these Akai samplers. And it just occurred to me that the beginning of the studio, death was coming, you know, <laughs> that this was a new way of recording for people and they really didn't need a studio as such. That doesn't mean to say that studios aren't valuable, that they shouldn't coexist. They do. We own studios, very fine studios. It, it just seemed like the business was about to change. So it's like any technology that comes along, it always has some kind of impact on the way things were done before, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I could see this one having a big impact because the record business was so top-heavy financially. And at that point, I mean, really to make an album, you needed a record contract. And they weren't readily handing out money to everybody so it was it was a very relatively small group of people that actually got to express their creativity mm. and this business has really leveled that playing field i mean now you've literally got millions of people out there making music every day and it costs them nothing to do so i mean other than the initial investment of buying a decent computer and even if you buy one of our composer cloud subscriptions it's like 30 bucks a month or something to have right access to you know literally tens of thousands of great instruments so there's no 
financial barrier now for people to explore their creativity. And that was certainly different when I was in my first studio where everything was kind of record company funded. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's a testament to your foresight to be able to see where the business was going, because I think a lot of people in any field like to double down on the old thing, hoping that it'll hold out. And you did a good job of making sure that that didn't happen. So as you're kind of going through this, you know, you have the passion, you have the energy, then on like a personal level, then how are you staying like connected to make sure you know the products you're making the next thing is going to be right for composers do you even care do you just make stuff you want is there market research how does that kind of come about how do you know to do hollywood backup singers next for example well you know one of the things that was very expensive back in the day when i was you know pre-sampling was to hire backup singers and mm -hmm. a lot of people wanted to use backup singers because they fire you know they provide a nice sort of oral vocal texture to the track but a lot of people just didn't have the money to do it so it, it was always at the back of my mind that this was a a product waiting to happen and it took so long i guess because the technology to be able to do it took so long but once we figured it out once we thought we could actually do a credible version of what we had in mind we did it in actual fact to be honest with you i wasn't even sure it was going to work because we'd done several choirs using this word builder technology but that's a different animal because you've got you know 70 odd people and the smearing uh, of those vocals kind of masks a lot of the artifacts that, that go with using a piece of software that you can literally type in words for for them to sing and also choirs generally sing in latin so even if the words weren't sort of perfect it was like no one was any the wiser anyway because it was in it was in a language they didn't even understand when we got to the backup singers that was a different thing altogether a we only had three singers so the actual smearing effect was was greatly diminished and we were primarily looking for words and phrases that were intelligible and could be used credibly in place of backup singers so we weren't sure. We, we were sure we wanted to do these three vocalists. We'd done Voices of Soul with one of them and loved that project. And she was just an amazing singer, C.C. White. And then the opportunity came to add two of the singers that toured with Pink Floyd for almost 20 years. The opportunity was just too good to pass up. So we were going to make a product with them no matter what. And we pretty much went in the studio and designed two products in case the word builder version didn't work but it did work and uh there was nobody more astounded than i was when we we did our initial test of the programming and it came back and we listened to it and thought, wow that's just great so th there's always a little bit of uh, experimentation involved in a lot of this stuff you know not everything works out it's like it's it's like everything you know you've you've got to make a lot of mistakes to kind of get to something that works yeah, that's actually the next question I was going to ask you is what kind of roadblocks, technical or even entrepreneurial, did you run into while setting this whole thing up? Because I think you have a studio now with four rooms in it. You record in ensembles. You have soloists. You've done it all at this point. So what sort of things have come up that surprised you in terms of mistakes, roadblocks, anything like that? Well, the, the industry at the start was a total roadblock because, you know, I'd been, uh, I'd been in, in working in my own studio and... I used to record when someone would bring in a good drum kit 
I'd, I'd record the, the drum sounds to tape, you know, and keep them because inevitably, you know, three days later, someone was going to come in with a terrible drum kit <laughs> and I'd have to replace the sounds, you know. So it all started off there. And then I thought, well, hang on, how many people really got access to studios like I do to be able to do this? Surely there must be a market out there for buying these sounds. So we made a product, I think 1989 or something like that. It was the first commercial drum sample CD ever put out. Problem was where to sell it. You know, the the record stores didn't want to know about selling individual sounds. And of course, everything was on CD at that point. The musical instrument stores like Guitar Center, they weren't interested in selling CDs. That wasn't their format at all. So there was really nowhere to sell it. And uh, it was only because I knew somebody who worked at Guitar Center in Hollywood and, and said, look, I think there's a market for this thing. Let me bring in a, a box of them, put them on the counter, and if they don't sell, just call me up a couple of weeks and I'll come and pick them up. And they all went like within a day. We knew then that we we're onto something, you know. But the next step was to get a name attached to it all. So that's where uh, Bob Clearmountain came into it. He was like the the biggest thing in mixing at the time. Still is, but he was a superstar back then. So I just said to Bob, hey, do you want to record some some new drum samples, you know, for your for your samplers and, and I'll pay you to do it and we're going to put out this product and it just went from there. That just took off. It sold like hotcakes. So that was really the embryo of the whole thing. And I'd say the, the most major roadblock between then and, say, the mid-90s was just the RAM limitations mm. of samplers in general. And uh, it wasn't until we partnered with this Texas company called Nemesis to develop the Giga Sampler, which was streaming off hard disk, mm-hmm. that really kind of opened up what we could actually do. And, I mean probably 95% of the products that people take for granted these days from all companies in our business is a result of that technology breakthrough. Mm. So that was that was the biggest thing, I think. It freed up the computer in terms of how much onboard RAM it had. You know, now we can virtually do anything we want. I mean, people have got decent computers. They actually have a decent amount of RAM most in most computers. And definitely with the advent of like SSDs and things like that, they're fast enough to to really, you know, load up a big template of instruments and, and, and run it live. Yeah, totally. It's it's grown a lot. And I remember, you know, when I started, I was probably like 13, 14. So it was a lot of synthesis and all that sort of stuff. But even having eight gigs of RAM was considered insane. And now 64 is like, yeah, cool, which is awesome. It must mean you have a lot more freedom to make whatever it is you want to make. So when you are kind of making, you know, you have you've recorded so many different things from full orchestras to just soloists, as you know, you produce all of these, how do you kind of make sure the process of all of these recordings, especially with giant string sections and all these articulations, is managed well, especially among all your employees, you're getting all the like file names right, even those little management things, I'm sure, are extremely time consuming. So at the top, how are you making sure all these projects get done, they're done in a timely manner, you're not renting out the studio for you know three years at a time to get every single articulation and make sure it's all packaged nicely and sent out the door in a timely way. Well, we bought the studio so we could do that. You know, <laughs> we didn't buy a commercial recording studio because it was a, a good business. It's a terrible business. <laughs> um, we bought it because we were running into these kind of time constraints in other studios. 
and it was getting very expensive. In fact, Nick and I have sampled two full orchestras now. We did uh, symphonic orchestra up in a hall in Seattle, a 2,500-seat uh, concert hall, which had no one had ever done before. But the problem with that was that you couldn't get it for long, you know, because it was a busy concert hall. So we went back twice, I think. We did two weeks the first time, went back and did another two. So we had a, like a month total. And also getting the orchestra, we had to hire them in their off-season. Right. You know, so it, it was the logistics was fairly awesome. And that's why we ended up buying the studio because we couldn't do with that first orchestra what we really wanted to do with all the true regatta and everything. And we needed literally a couple of months uh, in the studio to be able to do all that. Because when you've you got a whole orchestra there, you've got to sample every possible articulation, every dynamic, you know, every combination, you know, you've got all sorts of stuff going on that that people expect these days, you know, it's not like it's even a choice. You right. have to do that. You know, otherwise it's just, it's a failure, you know, but to back up to your other question, you know, most of these libraries are born out of need. Nick Phoenix is a top composer, you know, very successful composer. And he's done a lot of um, music beds, you know, for Sony and, and people like that. Quite often it was like, you know, I need this instrument and I can't find it anywhere. Or if it, if it exists, it's it's not good enough, you know? So almost all of the times that we've done this, it's been out of that need, mm. not because somebody else did it and we need to do it. That's never been our motivation. Mm. I don't really care what other people do. I mean, people need a diversity of products, so it's good that there's other people out there doing it too. And also it ups the ante, you know, it keeps everybody striving to raise the bar, you know, which I think is important. But that's that's the catalyst for all of these products, really. And then sometimes we run into a situation where we think we've got a better a product we've made. So that's what Hollywood Orchestra came into into being. Very nice. Okay, awesome. So you always you always have the market ready because you know there's a need for it. So it's never really an issue of knowing whether or not does anyone want this you kind of at least have one person with nick phoenix saying he wants it so that's kind of a a good way to go it sounds like so with you know all of these moving parts you know you you were recording maybe even multiple libraries at a time or just one at a time you have engineers you have programmers you have so many people working on each of these things what have you done as the kind of producer engineer head of the company to make sure that everything sounds consistent because what i've noticed is that everything east west sounds east west like they all work together they all blend together and that sounds like it'd be hard to do over the course of three decades to make sure it's all staying consistently high quality well i mean we have a good team that's the bottom line mm -hmm. i think there's not a single person that can do all this stuff just logistically for what you mentioned yeah a lot of these projects can involve you know north of 100 people and they have to be managed as well right in, in terms of you know what they're turning in the, the quality of what they're turning in that has to be managed so we we tend to go back to the same people mm. that have proven to be doing good work you know over over a long period of time is obviously going way back it was a lot more simple in those days and mm. we could pretty much do it ourselves but nowadays these productions can get pretty big so it's it's really just assembling the right talent you know when we did the first orchestra Nick and I decided that 
we got uh, Keith O. Johnson to engineer it because he'd already like had 13 Grammys or something for classical recording. And it was like, you know, it's, it's not something we'd spend our life doing, you know, recording an orchestra. So why not just bring somebody in that has that talent? Mm-hmm. And the same thing with Hollywood Orchestra. When we did that, we wanted, we wanted to go more of a kind of filmy, a film way, hence the Hollywood thing. Yeah, big mm-hmm. epic blockbuster sound, that type of stuff. So Sean Murphy was the obvious choice. He's done all the Star Wars movies, you know, um, Jurassic Park. I mean, just a ton of stuff that's really epic. Uh, knew how to get that sound. So, you know, we brought Sean in to, to help us out the sound side of that. But a lot of it's just experience that Nick and I have developed over the decades. You know, we've been working together in a, as a, a production team now for 26 years. Mm-hmm. It's almost like I'm married to him, you know, <laughs> with all the good and bad that, that gets attached to that, you know. Right. But we've kind of split it up so that, you know, I'm looking after the sound side, he's looking after the music side, and it just works, you know. Nice. We, we, we off, offload enough of the tasks to each other that we can, you know, we can we can do more than than an individual could do. Yeah, it's just one of those one of those partnerships that that, that really uh, I was very impressed when I first met him. He bought a library that he'd developed at home, a guitar and bass library, and it was so much better than anything else I'd heard at the time. And this is we're talking nineteen ninety four or something, and with still with the old technology. This is pre uh, streaming from hard disk, and he'd made an amazing library out of it. I couldn't even figure out how he how he did it, you know. And we just started working together from that point on and it just kept developing. I mean this he still has his music career and I still have East to West to run and all the rest of it. So we have other things that we're involved in. But it just works. You know, we've done projects on our own. I've done a lot of projects on my own. He's done projects on his own. Always the ones we've done together are the, the best and most successful. You know That's awesome. Yeah, so it's a good partnership. That's awesome. Yeah, I've noticed a lot with people who are more entrepreneurial, such as yourself, they either, you know, really rely on, you know, they have a partner, they have a team, whatever it may be. And they're very good at managing the offloading of certain tasks. They're really good at saying, I don't want to do everything or I can't do everything here. Let's let's split it up. You know, there are a lot of musicians nowadays, as you know, who tend to go more towards entrepreneurial things as well. You know, maybe they aren't just an artist. They do want to do things. They want to, you know, make libraries, for example, or they want to make their own plugins, or maybe they want to teach courses or anything like that. For those more entrepreneurial types out there, what's kind of your advice for them to make it so that they can kind of stick it out through all the early phases of business where sometimes nothing is happening? Well, nothing is happening at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to make it. You've got to make it happen. It's just just like our trying to market a CD that nobody wanted. You have to. You just have to be tenacious about it. Just don't give up. Mm-hmm. If you really believe in, in the idea and what you're doing, you'll make it happen. You know, mm-hmm. it's there's a lot of rejection in the arts, as you know, and uh, that kind of goes with the territory. You know, it, it, it's like we make some stuff. You know, Nick in particular is very upset when he sees some of these comments on the forums and. I just say, look, it's like not everybody like the Beatles either. You know, it's like you can't have 100% of people thinking that something's good. When you're involved in any kind of artistic endeavor, you're always going to have your detractors. You know, some, sometimes they have their own agenda as well. You know, they might be working or a fan of a competitor or something like that. You don't know 
what's going on. My my philosophy is you do the best you can, you make it the best you can, and you put it out there and you kind of live with the results. You know, that's that's just it's the only way that you can do it. I mean, it's we we try and make great products. We spend a lot of time and never ever consider the cost of making a product. If we need more money to to do it to the standard that we we want to do it, we get the money, you know. So it's there's no never any compromise. So the product that we put out is an uncompromised product for better or for worse. And at the end of the day, it's going to be the user or the the critic or whatever that's going to have their say about whether they think we succeeded or not. It's not, that's not our role. Our role is just to get it out there. Mm. So do you ever take in any sort of community feedback or anything like that? Or do you feel that, you know, you have a good internal kind of knowledge base and team where you can talk, kind of talk amongst each other and know, okay, let's tweak it this way next time, or let's do this next time. How do you kind of manage where those new expectations and criticism are coming from? Yeah, if we hear something that is consistently repeated, then mm. we'll look into it, you know, and, and if they're right, we fix it. I mean, it's one, the one good thing about software is you can always update it. And I mean, all of these products go through you know, myriad of updates over time. And, and a lot of that comes back from user feedback, you know, because it's like you can have your team and I, we've got a great team and they've got good ears and we feel like the product we put out initially is a good product. And we have a, a team, you know, about a hundred beta testers that, that will test the product before it goes to market. And, and so we try and catch as much as we can, but we can't, we just can't catch all of it. I mean, the, the Hollywood orchestra is, is a terabyte in size, you know, it's, it's, it's got over a million samples, you know, and it's like, it's just not possible to know if there's some bad actors in there, you know, sure. and, but the users will tell us for sure. You know, they'll say, hey, your uh, second dynamic, you know, on, on C major is is out of tune or something like that. So we go back, we check, and if it is, we fix it. Hmm. And that's kind of how it all works. I mean, the process always works like that. I think it works like that for any software developers, whether it be in our sort of genre or just door softwares. They're always bringing out new versions. It's always fixing something or adding something we'll add something too we won't just bring out a new version and, and fix something we if we think something can be done better then we'll also improve it as well that's what we're doing actually right now with hollywood orchestra opus it's a significant upgrade to hollywood orchestra that we're about to release um, in january it's been over a year in development and it's just an upgrade you know nice. <laughs> i love it the way that we spend and luckily we recorded this we recorded it ask. the pandemic you know yeah. you know uh, otherwise we would have been screwed you can't even record an orchestra nowadays the way we did it then you know they come into the studio they got to be six feet apart and the sound's different mm-hmm. you know it's really different so that was a little bit of luck that we got the recording done before this god-awful pandemic hit Right. Um, yeah, that that is very lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By the way, do you play that cello behind you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm not. I'm not amazing at it. I, is, that I'll admit. Your, uh, is, that, is that your weapon of choice? That is that is one of my weapons of choice. Um, I came up as a drummer primarily, and now it's all melodic instruments. <laughs> okay. Because having a drum set is impractical. But that's that's kind of the shift I made as cello and piano. After that. Right. right. 
it's a great instrument to sample even on my on my own in my little studio it's endless possibilities which i'm grateful yeah. for yeah. you can literally spend the rest of your life just sampling orchestral instruments if you you know but you got to kind of cut it at some point and sort of say you know <laughs> this thing is never going to be economically viable if we keep going you know right <laughs> yeah it's so true and like actually speaking of kind of making something economically viable but also you know full of good stuff and playable and useful for composers is there anything you're seeing in the sample world in general it could be with your stuff it could be with other people's stuff anything like that that you're seeing oh this is missing or this thing is missing this feature is missing or this level of playability is missing or this instrument is there anything that you're seeing that you really want to tackle next or something on the horizon you're seeing technologically that you really can't wait to sink your teeth into uh, I think we could take the choir to another level. Mm. Uh, voice technology is getting better and better. Mm. So I'm hoping at some point we can do it with talking to a computer rather than typing. Into oh. That involves multiple skills. Uh, you know, have to have two pieces of software to do that, working in sync with each other. And although companies like Nuance and people like that have pretty good voice technology, it's pretty much centered on the pc side at this point there's nothing that's cross-platform right now and that's that's the problem for us if there was we could do it and and it will come it's just when you know but i always wanted to do that so you could if you were a singer for example you could sing into a microphone with your single voice and out would come a choir um, <laughs> singing what you're singing so that's something i want to do in the future you know a lot of it really gets held up because of technological limitations mm. but think back you know mid 90s you were lucky to play two voices on a computer right, right. you know and we made a piano in 1995 that was a, like a five star awarded product in sound on sound and you need it had two dynamics and it needed two akai samplers to play back the two wow. dynamics people forget you know they just <laughs> take it all for granted now that it's unlimited what you can do and it kind of is mm. these days but it wasn't like that at one time you know, yeah. so it's it, a lot of it is really limited by technology. Yeah, it's, that makes sense. It's not imagination. It's just technology. You know? Yeah, it's good to see that you have ideas kind of nonstop though, ready for when that tech uh, yeah, exists. Yeah, we have, we have so a lot of ideas too that we're waiting for certain things to happen. I'd like to do some Dolby Atmos stuff, you know, mm. I mean, we're getting into a 3D world. I mean, not just in movies, and but, but also with games and, and mm. uh, you know, virtual reality, and I'd like I'd like to do some stuff in, in Dolby Atmos, and we're talking to Dolby at the moment about modifying the Atmos software so that we are able to produce that. But once again, we can't do it. They have right. to do it, right? right? Sometimes it just takes a long time to, to be able to realise these ideas because there are other companies and, and uh, you know, we're not like a huge industry, so it's not like top of their priority list, right. you know. Just actually my involvement with working with Stephen Wilson on Ghost Rider and the fact that he's done so many Dolby Atmos mixes of classic bands. I mean, mm. 30, 40 surround sound mixes of classic albums. Mm -hmm. And his relationship that got forged with Dolby because of that is the only reason they're really talking to us. But there's, there's a lot of things. I mean, we, we sounds exist in a 3D world, not a 2D world. So I'd really like to get uh, more involved in that. And plus, we had the foresight, I think, you know, going back 20 years to start recording everything multi-mic'd. Mm. So, so we've got it all, 
you know, we have all the source material that we can set it up, you know, in a, in a Dolby Atmos environment. Um, Dolby Atmos is cool. I don't know if you've, if you've ever listened to totally. it. Totally. Yeah, yeah, incredible. You know, yeah. I love the overhead thing and, you yeah. know, it's 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 crazy. You can have a helicopter sort of going there. You really right. look at there. You swear there's one over your head. You know, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, I remember someone from Dolby describing it as surround with a hat. <laughs> it's just a whole bunch of arrays above you, and it's so cool. It feels really, so good. It really is. You can pinpoint sounds like to you know dozens and dozens of locations, and it's 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 amazing. And uh, so I want to do more of that. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we will do eventually, but. Right now, we just want to put this baby to bed, you know. Of course. <laughs> it's been a year already, you know. <laughs> yeah, a, a year and now a pandemic. It's, it's, I'm sure, I'm sure you're feeling ready to release this well, thing. The pandemic was actually good for us in post-production because everyone was stuck at home. So yeah. <laughs> there was nothing more, nothing else they could do. <laughs> I guess that works out. <laughs> it really did work out for That's us. That's awesome. Yeah. So speaking of evolutions, considering you talked about you know, from, from 1995, having a, a piano instrument with two dynamics all the way up to now where you're now thinking of singing into a microphone and having a choir sing back or doing stuff in Dolby Atmos. There's so much kind of evolution through your career, through the whole industry as a whole that you've seen. And so for one kind of final question for you is when you started, what was your kind of definition of success and how did that change to today? How, how is it different now? Well, definition of success at the beginning was, was there a market for this? Mm. You know, I had an idea that there was, but the concept had to be proven. Right. And we found out pretty quickly that there was a market for it. And, and it's an insatiable market. You know, they, people can never get enough. And people say, oh, what about all these other companies and, you know, this business? I, I think it's great. It means that we don't have to spend our entire life doing this, you know, <laughs> at least other people are like filling in the holes. Right. And also there's, there's some healthy competition, I think, between the various companies. Everyone's making better products because of the competition. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the definition of success is that we're still doing it 32 years later. Yeah. You know, but I don't think the the basics of the business have changed so much. It's uh, I just think the the, the technology's changed a lot. The uh, subscription model that's something new. It really levels the playing field. We were really a little worried about doing it to start with because we were selling you know products in the three four hundred to thousand dollar range, right? Right. And we thought, well, yeah, you know, we're going to make these available to people for you know. 20 to 30 bucks a month. I mean, that's, that's a significant loss. But I had a feeling that that wasn't really the issue, that mm. there was a lot of people out there that really didn't want to spend $300, $400 sure. on one library, right? And that they wanted to explore their creativity, but they didn't want to invest that much doing so. And it all proved to, to be true because most of the people that are in, Compose the cloud were not our customers before. Oh. Most of them were our new customers. So we managed to sort of avoid that transfer, if you like, and bring in a whole new customer base. And these are people that really are interested in exploring their creativity, but they don't want to invest or they can't afford to invest mm -hmm. more money in doing so. So once again, it democratizes the music mm -hmm. industry. And it means anybody with a computer and some sounds and a door 
can make anything. If they've got talent, they'll rise to the top. And if they don't, they'll sort of fall to the wayside. That's, that's just kind of how it is. Mm-hmm. Ask me the same question in 10 years. I, don't, <laughs> I, probably, I might have a different answer. <laughs> that's the whole point of the question. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll evolve too as you. I don't as know you, what success is. I mean, success to me is doing something you love, mm-hmm. you know, and getting paid for it. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that to me is success. I love it. The rest of it's up to other people whether they think we're successful right. or not. Right. You know? I love it. I love yeah. it. That's a good mindset to have, especially as you, you know, keep going. You're going to keep releasing stuff. You're going to keep making stuff. So it makes sense. And that's how you stay consistent and on the path. Makes perfect yep. sense. Yep. So thank you so much, Doug. That kind of wraps it up. If you have anything that you want to share right now for the interview, for where people can find you, what people can look out for, please feel free to share it or how people can find you on the internet. If you have Twitter or Instagram, anything like that. Yeah, we've got soundsonline.com, which is our website. And then uh, our Facebook page, which is East West Sound. Instagram, we've got all the usual social media outlets. Mm -hmm. And that's one way that they can communicate with us. They can contact the studio if they've got they really want to contact us and they have some bright idea, you know, the studios is a sort of like a different animal together. You know, it's, <laughs> it's funny because we have this, you mentioned before, we have a, a four room studio right. and all of those rooms sound really, really different, which is, was the appeal to me when I bought it. Because if we're doing like a rock thing, we need studio two. If we're doing the orchestra, we need studio one. We did the Hollywood Backup Singers in Studio 3, which is probably the most famous room there. You know, it's where all Pet Sounds was done and all the, pretty much all the hits of the 60s, Mamas and Papas, you know, all that sort of stuff. There was a whole era that materialized in that room. So, but because of that, we have a very diverse range of musicians coming in, you know, and that enables me to a certain extent to keep my ear to the ground. Hmm. and see what they're doing because these guys are working on stuff that's coming out six months 12 months 12 months down the line so we get a kind of first look at at what they're working at where where they're headed sort of musically and all the rest of it so having that connection i think is also very important Hmm. and talking to those people is very important a lot of them are our software users as well you know and and a lot of them are like really famous musicians so their feedback is invaluable you know? you're, you're staying connected. That's wonderful. I love it. Both sides of the business covered. If you want to record, you can go to our studios. If you don't want to record, you can buy our software. <laughs> <laughs> clever. You're a clever guy. I love it. <laughs> awesome, Doug. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. And it was great to hear about your career over the last 32 plus years. And I can't wait to see what you all get up to next. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash sound biz pod. Sound B-I-Z pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects. They'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game, music, and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.